You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 21st, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hello, Governor. And Evan Bernstein. And on this date, today in 1677, the first medical book was published in the United States. What medical book was that, Evan? A pamphlet uh, concerning the smallpox disease. Fascinating. Incredible. I hope they get that uh, cured sometime soon, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's only been 330 years. No, we'll be getting rid of that any moment now. (laughs) No, but they didn't have autism back then. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they didn't have any of the diseases they hadn't discovered and named yet. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Right. So, uh, Rebecca's in London right now with Sid. I'm in London, yes. And I, uh, and I, that's why she said hello with an English accent, and I had to respond, because I'm like, you know, Pablo's I was really dog. just goading you. I know. I can't help myself. <laughs> so how are our fellow skeptics across the pond, Rebecca? I, I think everyone on this side of the Atlantic is fantastic, and we've had a, it's been a really great week so far. I did London Skeptics in the Pub on Monday, and that was fantastic. I saw a lot of, a lot of Skeptics Guide friends and guests uh, that you guys know, like uh, Simon Singh was there, and John Ronson, who we haven't had on the show yet, but we will. He's my super best friend, and he's awesome. Tim Minchin came, and he was a lot of fun. Great musician, and Ben Goldacre was there. You guys met him at Tim. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I miss you guys, though. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, we missed you last week. I was really bummed to miss last week, because I didn't think I was going to be able to make it this week, because, Mm -hmm. I mean, it is 2 a.m. right now here in London. Yeah. Ouch. Can we all just stop and, and think about the great sacrifice I'm making for you all by being on the show at 2 a.m. All right, that's long enough. So, Bob, <laughs> you got the first news item this week. Tell us about the holographic universe. Oh, God. Yeah, Jay and I did some preliminary talking about this. This one is really fascinating. I, I had a really good time researching this. But hold on to your beanie hats with the propellers on them. This one's pretty, this one's pretty wicked. I'm sorry, Bob, I don't have my beanie hat with a propeller on it, so can I hold on to something else? Yeah, just put your hand on Sid's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, what does your beanie head have on top of it? I can't say on a family podcast. Okay. <laughs> Use your imagination. Well, scientists may, scientists may have actually detected the, the grain of the universe. This may mean that our reality, everything we see and do, our entire universe, in fact, is like a three-dimensional holographic image of sorts projected from somewhere else. Talk about a one-two punch. This one was very, very interesting. It starts, the whole story starts with a German-British gravity wave detector called the GO600 in northern Germany. They've been trying to find for seven years Einstein's theorized gravity waves, and uh, they haven't found them yet, but they've run into a big a relatively big problem. Their detector keeps getting this background noise that will not go away. They, they've tried every way to rule it out. There's this subtle background noise that, that's been plaguing them. Bob, did they turn the fan off? <laughs> yeah, right. Don't! Oh! At this point, Craig Hogan enters a picture. He's a physicist at Fermilab, 
Particle Physics Lab in Batavia, Illinois, and he was recently appointed as the director of Fermilab Center for Particle Astrophysics. He's been thinking about this really interesting principle called the holographic principle. It's a little, it's a little complicated, but the, the idea is that the total amount of information or entropy that a space can contain depends on the surface or the, bond, the boundary of that space and not the volume of that space. You see what I mean? So as an analogy, yeah. think, of a pla- think of the plastic used in a beach ball being directly related to the amount of information inside, inside the beach ball. So it's not, the vol- it's not the volume of the beach ball that matters, but it's the, there's a relationship between the surface on the outside and, and the inside. There's a direct, almost a one-to-one correspondence. That's, uh, that's a little counterintuitive, but maybe there's a, I'm sure there's some mathematical reason for that. Well, you nailed it exactly. Um, the, the, the mathematical principle actually works extremely well with uh, the entropy of black holes. In, in 1972, a physicist, uh, Jacob Bekenstein, discovered that the black hole's entropy or information content is proportional to the surface area of the event horizon, which is essentially the holographic principle. Mm-hmm. The idea here is that the progenitor star, the star that exploded to become that black hole, all of the information about the three-dimensional structure and everything about that star is encoded in the, the two-dimensional event horizon. So that's, that's basically the idea of, of this, this holographic principle. What? In the 1990s, two other physicists, you got Susskind and De Hooft, they extrapolated this whole principle from the black hole's event horizon to the cosmological horizon of, of the universe. It's essentially the, the boundaries of, of our observable universe. So they kind of extrapolated it to the entire universe. So this, this would mean that the universe could essentially be described as a two-dimensional construct embedded in the boundaries of the of the horizon of the universe. I don't get this at all. Okay, let me just f- continue this thought then. So then our visible universe would then can then be seen as a three-dimensional representation of processes that are happening on this two-dimensional surface. Is the universe in three dimensions or not? Well, I mean some people will say that the th- the three dimensions can be kind of a, it's an illusion and the reality is that this you've got this 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 two-dimensional surface and we're just a projection but it's it's real enough it's real enough to me and and there's still way way too much that we don't know ab- about this to really come to any firm to any firm conclusions the hologram analogy it's not perfect but it does help think of a hologram a hologram on your credit card it's basically a piece of plastic with a two-dimensional pattern etched onto it when you shine light on it it a 3D pattern emerges so that's kind of what's happening with this holographic principle there's a few more steps here, so bear with me. This one is a little more nasty than usual. So now we're back to Hogan. One of his keen insights here was that he realized that if this principle could be applied to the universe, then each tiny bit of our horizon would be linked to somewhere inside, right? Now, this, the tiniest bit of anything anywhere allowed by quantum theory is called the Planck length. Have you heard of that? That's the, that's the smallest conceivable thing that, that could exist. It's 1.6 times 10 to the minus 36 meters. That's about as small as small can get. There's no conceivable way, yeah. there's no conceivable way to examine the universe at, at this scale. It's 100 billion billion times smaller than a proton. Really, really tiny. That's the fundamental unit of length or grain allowed in space-time. So you've got this Planck length or, the, or this grain. Now... Since in general, surface area, like I said, since surface area is less than its volume, right? If, if you think of a surface of a beach ball, that surface area of the ball is much smaller than the interior volume, right? So, but the thing right. is, but you're also, each grain on the surface corresponds 
to, to a point on the inside. So imagine you take this beach ball and you put dots all around it. Each dot would map to a much bigger dot inside the ball, right? Because you could fit, if you fit 100 dots on the outside, it would fit a trillion similarly sized dots on the inside. So these dots have to be bigger on the inside. You see what I'm saying? This is the key concept here. So this is what Hogan realized. He figured that if we had a measuring instrument detailed enough, we could potentially see the pixels or grain or plank length of space-time because the holographic version of them in in the universe would be much bigger than they really are on the surface. So is the plank length – by the way, the plank length is the bigger dot on the inside of the universe? No, the plank – it's both. It's it's kind of both. both, But the true plank length is that that figure I I said, 1.6 times 10 to the minus 36 meters, impossibly small. But since we are potentially living in this holographic projection, it's kind of blurry. It's like a lower-res version of what's what's really – What's real? What's the, the two-dimensional surface of the cosmological horizon? So that's the real size, okay. which we could never see. But because we're this, we might be this projection, it's kind of a blurry, bigger image because you've got a, you're corresponding a tiny plank length on the surface to a bigger unit of volume in, in three-dimensional space, much bigger, as a matter of fact, maybe 10 to the minus 16 meters is one uh, is one measurement I saw being thrown around. So, the, so the, a really cool thing is that Hogan, this guy is so sharp that he predicted he w- he was thinking, all right, what measuring instruments are sharp enough, are detailed enough to see this? And he realized that the Geo six hundred gravity wave detector would be sensitive enough. And he predicted because they're so sensitive, they they might be getting noise, the actual this qu- quantum convulsions from uh, from space time. In their in their measurements, and he and he got in touch with them, and that's exactly what they had. They they actually sent him a plot of the noise that they were seeing, and it matched his predictions. Wow! So the, and so there's one other bit of evidence that I thought was that was fairly compelling. Um, it's not it's not just the black hole evidence that seems to work with the event horizon. It's not just Hogan's predictions. There's another theorist named Juan Mal- Maldacena. He actually showed, he, somehow he created a hypothetical universe. I, might, I don't know how what it consisted of, whether it was software or not, but he made a hypothetical universe of five dimensions, and the physics inside it matched the physics on the four-dimensional boundary. So the fact that he was able to do that actually gives a little credence you know, to what we're saying here. So in his model, the particles that interact on the surface corresponded exactly with the interacting strings on the interior. So b- because he was able to do that hypothetically, it, it makes you think that, well, okay, maybe you know, may- there might be something to this, I- and I think it's worth pursuing. But remember, the bottom yeah. line is that no one knows if this is true yet. Most scientists consider this more of an idea or a hypothesis than a theory. And, and as a matter of fact, it's really a double-edged sword if it's true. We may never see gravity waves because the resolution of the universe is too low to detect them. On the, but on the other hand, of course, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, w- it could help with determining quantum gravity. And one great quote I found here said that ultimately we may have our first indication of how space-time emerges out of quantum theory. So this, this could be really huge. And if it starts panning out, we will definitely see some Nobel Prizes being thrown around. So, so check, out, uh, check out my blog on Friday. Okay, what the hell? Who huh? comes up with this stuff? Who comes up with this stuff? Come on. Joe Bag of Donuts. I mean, really. This. I mean, <laughs> All right, Joe. It's, it's yeah. mind-numbing. It's Check, mind-numbing. Yeah. Bob, as soon as I figure out what you were talking about, you're going to blow my mind. I can't wait to hear this episode three times. Michio Kaku is uh, 
having a hard yeah, time. Yeah, I wonder with this does, one. does this tie in with string theory at all? Are these completely independent lines of thought? Actually, there are some connections with string theory and M theory, and um, the one, the other good thing that may come of this is that if this is is actually shown to be to be likely, then um, it could actually be used to say, all right, these quantum theories do not include these, these quantum gravity theories do not include the holographic principle, so we can exclude them. And these, you know, these string theories, you know, these yeah. versions of string theory and M theory do include it. So then, we'll, so we'll, so they're more likely we will, you know, we'll retain them, and they're, they're, you know, they're more likely to be true. So yeah, it does. There is a there is a connection. Steve, this isn't actually string theory. This is this is called dental floss theory. <laughs> Mental uh. floss theory. <laughs> I guess the the, uh, the next thing to think about uh, is why is the universe built this way? Because some spaceship is projecting us in a holodeck right now. Computer and program. <laughs> good one, Evan. That's a good one. <laughs> Every now and then you got to say that just to check it out. Does, does this uh, support the ma- the matrix theory of reality? Did you just say the matrix theory, like the theory that we're all just Living in uh, a matrix. Batteries for yeah, robots? Of course. <laughs> Where the hell have you been, Rebecca? All right, so, but Bob, let me ask you a question. How does this advance the human race? The projection of the human race, the hologram. You never know what's going to come of things. Uh, what's, that, what's that quote when J.J. Uh, Thompson discovered the electron? Uh, there was some big. Um, f- Holy shit! No, there was some there, at some big uh, science physics dinner, whatever. They people were saying, you know, to to JJ Thompson's electron, may nothing come of it whatsoever. You know, of course, now or what? Our entire eco- the world economy is based on electrons. You never know what's going to come out of it, and who cares? Just the thrill of discovery. You know, defunding d- discovering the fundamental aspects of the universe. I mean, if, if that doesn't get you off, then I don't know. Right. Now, that, that story reminds me of the story of the cosmic background radiation, where the radio astronomers couldn't get rid of this background noise, and it turns out that was the, the leftover noise from the Big Bang, and, and the, the profile of that noise matched predictions of the Big Bang, and that's, it all kind of ties together in a similar yeah, kind that of way. Yeah, that was a really interesting analogy. That was, uh, I, I kept thinking of that while I was re- researching this, that it's very similar. you got this background noise, don't know what it is. I remember they went into, the, into their telescope and they're cleaning out the bird crap and trying to yeah. make it, and they're still there, still there. And finally, they realized, I mean, they got Nobels out of this, and, and we learned so much. It, it, it really reinforced the uh, uh, Big Bang, and all sorts of great stuff came out of it. So We're going to have to revisit this whole concept of the holographic universe. Maybe if we could wrangle a physicist uh, onto the show to to talk to us about it. We might be able to delve into it a little bit deeper. Absolutely. But I think I got the basic idea. You don't get it, though, Steve? I mean, I totally get it. You don't understand this? I mean, I understand what Bob <laughs> said. I don't, I just, it's hard to know how that sort of plugs into the whole construct of quantum mechanics and theoretical physics. That's interesting about the Planck length. Because that's, again, when you understand... The, the 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 basics like the, the you know the college level of quantum mechanics the, the Planck length is everywhere in quantum mechanics everything seems to always reduce down to the Planck length it seems to be a fundamental building block of reality and yet there isn't really any theory as to why that would be this seems like the first step towards figuring that out why there is that that's where the word quantum comes from that the universe is not uh, is not analog it's, it's, discrete, it's discrete right you can, you can only get down to this this minimum quantum of stuff of space time why is that i don't know i think when we understand that we'll we'll get a much better handle on the whole quantum mechanics yeah, thing yeah you mentioned the, the planck length steve it's the value of planck length is derived from from constants such as the speed of light 
um, Planck's constant and uh, the con- the, gra- the gravitational constant. Yeah. So I mean, they're, they're deriving it from that. So if you know if the foundation is is strong, then so is you know so is that. All right. Well, let's bring this back down to Earth a little bit. We're going to talk about the intelligent design and academic freedom in uh, Louisiana and Texas. As we've discussed previously, the the latest strategy of the intelligent design movement after they failed to get intelligent design forced into public schools, you know, they had an epic legal failure with the Dover trial a couple of years ago. Their next strategy was academic freedom, trying to get freedom for teachers to teach controversial theories or to criticize evolution or to uh, use material that is not the official uh, recognized material for their school system. And they have now been successful in getting just such a law passed in Louisiana. This was passed by the state's Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, and this is the Louisiana Science Education Act. Casey Luskin, who is uh, one of the the chief propagandists for the Discovery Institute, which is that intelligent design, quote-unquote, think tank, characterized the bill as a victory for Louisiana students and teachers. So if he likes it, it has to be bad. Essentially what the law says is, again, as I said, so teachers have the freedom to use other texts. Now, if you if you didn't have the context and you just read this law, it seems fairly innocuous. And then again, that is that has been the arc of the intelligent design creationism strategies is to make their efforts from a legal point of view, more and more innocuous so that, they, so that they can pass legal muster. But the purpose is always the same. They're trying to crack open the door into science classrooms, and then once that door is cracked open, they, they will shove as much pseudoscience and anti-evolution propaganda and creationism through that crack as they can. That's the goal. In this particular case, what they're trying to do is open the open that door for – their alternative science texts. They have a, the Discovery Institute publishes a book called Explore Evolution, which is chock full of nonsense and anti-evolution and anti-evolution pseudoscience. Uh, and that is the text that they want teachers to to use. And this law was crafted to give teachers cover for for using these kinds of pseudoscientific texts in their science classrooms. Interestingly, there was in the you know the wrangling and the fighting back and forth over this law. Previously, in one version of it, there was uh, language saying that the teaching of intelligent design was specifically prohibited. But proponents of the law pressured the the board to remove those caveats in early December, and now the law has been passed without any caveats at all. So. Uh, this, unfortunately, is a legal victory for uh, the intelligent design buffoons, and we'll have to see how this plays out. The, the, probably nothing can happen until the bill actually gets applied. You know, just the bill itself doesn't say anything that is, is probably illegal because it doesn't say you have to teach you know, religious belief or anything that could be construed as religion. It's really just how it gets applied. So this, this unfortunately, is a, uh, is a loss for the good guys. Well, yeah, and, what we need is for somebody to start teaching intelligent falling in school as opposed yeah. to gravity and then you know, send it back and, so they can work out something that doesn't sound completely ridiculous or that doesn't right. allow these idiots to pass off their 
stupid religion as as science. Right. I mean, this this is the next phase that we've been discussing, and and again, the the, the key um, intellectual malfunction here is that they're confusing academic freedom with um, academic standards. Right, the whole purpose of having a curriculum and improved text and whatnot is to maintain some kind of standards. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that teachers can't be free to ex- to explore within those boundaries and to try to use methods uh, based upon their own experience and their professionalism. That's fine, but they can't they can't hijack the the curriculum of the school in order to teach religious belief as science. And and that's what this law is really the purpose of it, is to give teachers cover who want to do that. Similar kind of fighting going on in Texas, uh, although it seems that things are going better there for the good guys. Just today, there has been testimony before the school board in terms of approving the the new uh, science standards. And they have been um, actually dramatically improved over the previous set of standards. Now, the fight in this case is over whether or not to include in the standards the provision to allow for the teaching of the strengths and weaknesses of scientific theories, specifically evolution. So here, this is again kind of under the academic freedom rubric, but they're they're taking a slightly different linguistic tact here, just trying to say that scientific standards should expressly include the teaching of the strengths and weaknesses of specific theories. Of course, this is just another way to crack open the door. What they're trying to do is say is then say that their text, their explore evolution is specifically allowed because it's teaching the weaknesses of evolutionary theory, and the law requires that the strengths and weaknesses of, of, of scientific theories be taught. So again, it's, it's all deceptive. It's all completely deceptive, and it's just these attempts to crack, crack open the door so they could shove their bullshit through. Uh, but, it, but that text, the strengths and weaknesses provision has been removed, and now that's what they're debating about. But hopefully, if the if the current version goes through without the strengths and weaknesses text, then that will be a victory for science in Texas. But again, we have to see how that plays out. Let's move on to some of your questions and emails. Uh, the first question was sent to us over uh, over Facebook, and actually, we we don't have the name of the person who sent it at the moment. Uh, but this is a question about just asking us what we thought about a specific news article on sexual pheromones, myth or reality. Uh, and Jay, you read up on this one. Yeah, I thought this was interesting. I mean, my gestalt reaction to pheromones was I, I was pretty sure that uh, humans, like, you know, had some type of communication happening with pheromones or like we could pick up those kind of signals just like other animals or whatever. You know, it's one of those things that just kind of enters your head from by osmosis from being you know being alive right just hear about things about it you know pheromones and all that but it turns out that some scientists uh, were doing research on it and they they really can't find anything that concludes or proves that pheromones exist in humans pheromones definitely do exist in nature but it's not been proven in humans at all now there are some things that we that we know of like a a really cool example would be that uh, like a nursing infant would turn towards their mother's uh, the mother's lactating breast without seeing it. Like they would probably be able to smell to smell it somehow. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think they have any other theories on that. But they, you know, the, the the scent molecules in some way or another would drive a response. And you know, obviously, we have responses to th- to smells. You know, smells are, are mm-hmm. closely associated to our memory, and you know, 
pleasant and unpleasant smells can get a very strong reaction out of us. But you know, pheromones are, are kind of the like um, invisible things that that people would say that we would respond to. And you know, there's always like the, the the mating type of thing that people are trying to sell on the internet. You know, you know, we use this liquid, which is a which is pheromones and drive the women crazy and all that stuff. Well, these scientists said they can't find anything. And one of the leading scientists' name was Wyatt, and he said, as far as releasers go, it may be that we simply don't have them. Oh, and he explains that a releaser pheromone triggers a behavioral response, and the other kind of pheromone, called a primer pheromone, uh, is supposed to cause a physiological change. So he said, as far as releaser pheromones go, they don't think that we have them. When they study the, the historical evidence, they say that um, the research shows that at the same time that our primate ancestors gained color vision, that uh, they also lost the genes for, or the organ receptor, the organ that can, that, uh, can pick up pheromones. So it's pretty interesting. It's, in my mind, I'm just looking at it as, as like just something else that I believe that was actually untrue. So far with the, uh, the current research, that just no proof that pheromones work in human beings. Yeah, it's a, it's this is a genuine controversy and that has not yet been resolved. There are definitely still people on both sides. There is some um, tantalizing evidence. Probably the best case that could be made for pheromones having a physiological effect in humans is uh, the synchronization of female menstrual cycles through some kind of a hormonal, a, you know, remote hormonal effect. Uh, so that's probably the best established one. There, there's certainly nothing established that would attract the opposite sex, which, of course, is what the market of pheromones is based upon. That's all BS. In fact, one theory of if there is a pheromone in humans, one theory is that the purpose of them is not to attract members of the opposite sex, but in order to tighten the emotional bonds between an intimate couple, that you really only pick up the pheromones through intimacy. You already have to be intimate with somebody. And it's more of a of a pair bonding, reinforcing phenomenon than a let me attract everyone of the opposite sex who's out there. Which makes sense, you know, if we shifted to to a pair bonding t- basically type of lifestyle that we would lose any kind of advertising or signaling that would, you know, promote promiscuity or threaten, uh, threaten the pair bonding relationship. So another aspect of this I discovered when I was reading up on this too, Jay, was that, uh, as you say, that we may not have the receptors, and we don't in the nose anymore, to pick up on the pheromones. Some researchers have found, uh, for example, fMRI effects in the brain in response to certain pheromones, but at sub-threshold levels. So the people couldn't consciously smell anything, but there was still apparently some effect that was measurable in the brain. That's the kind of thing that definitely needs to be replicated. That's very tricky research to do. But so far, that's what the evidence is showing. So there's probably something going on. It's definitely not as strong as in many other animals. And it's probably not what the uh, perfume manufacturers would want us to believe, that you could, as you say, put on something that smells good and it would drive the opposite sex wild. Let's go on to the uh, one more email. This one comes from Chris Gerard in Cambridge, UK, and he writes, Hi, everyone. A jolly good morning to the Skep Chaps and the Skep Chick from Chile, England. Every now and again, there's a story about dyslexia like this. Then he provides a link to a BBC article. There are a few people who argue that it's a non-existent condition and that it's just about how well children are taught in their early years. Does this occur in the U.S. too? What's the SGU skinny on this? 
well, this is yet another topic where there's a lot of controversy about whether or not the phenomenon really exists, dyslexia. But this one, uh, the story is actually much more clear. Dyslexia essentially is a a recognized uh, learning disorder or neurological development disorder that involves poor reading ability. Now, you guys have probably all heard, again, uh, like through osmosis, you pick up the, the common lay conception of what dyslexia is, which, again, is almost always wrong, that the people reverse the letters in words or reverse words, and that actually is a complete myth. That has nothing to do with reality. What? Really? Yeah. There's, there's no reversing or anything. Wow. But that doesn't mean that dyslexia is not real. What dyslexia is is a, a set of neurological disorders that result in, paired, in impaired reading. In order to read, your, your brain needs to be able to do a couple of things. One is that it needs to be able to look at multiple letters at once and at a glance essentially put together the details of multiple letters into, into words and even groups of words. And it also needs to have the processing that essentially understands how to build words out of sounds. And those are two, in addition to other things as well, but th- and those uh, are two things that have been identified that may not be functioning well in different children who have dyslexia. So the classical, you know, for the last 10 or 20 years or so concept was that it was a, a problem with uh, phonemes with with understanding that words are made up of sounds, and those who have had children who you know have learned to read, you actually it's interesting, especially like as a neurologist, you know, watching my children learn how to do various things such as reading, because you you actually can see them at the different stages of their neurological development and what they can do, and then it's like flipping a switch when they they can do a new bit, right? They can do a new thing. So initially, when children are reading words, they they read the sounds, but they don't know how to put the sounds together in a word. Like I would say, but they don't, they don't, they can't go from to dog. That that, that connection is just not being made. And then they start to make that connection Mm -hmm. and their reading takes off. And then suddenly, D-O-G is not it's dog. Right, dyslexic children. Some some dyslexic children never make that leap. They never make that connection. So they they have a reading problem that persists. Now they you can compensate for it. You can try to to learn how to do it essentially the hard way. And a lot with like with a lot of things in neurology, there's dedicated cortex that is optimized for a specific task. But you can sort of kind of do the task with other parts of your brain too, just not very well. So. You, you can teach children with dyslexia to read, and there are specific strategies that have evolved, especially over like phonemic learning strategies, that can get them literate, can get them reading, but they're never going to be great readers. You know, It's always going to be a little bit more of a struggle for them than it would be for someone who doesn't have dyslexia. Also, it's important to recognize that dyslexics may also have other learning disabilities. It's not just about reading. There may be other learning disabilities that go along with it. So even if they do achieve literacy, that doesn't mean that their learning ability is up to average or or normal. Some people, however, cast doubt on the existence of dyslexia, not really within the mainstream neurological community by my experience, but more among uh, politicians or whatnot or, or educators who say that, well, you know, if you take a bell curve of human variation in any trait, 
you can always call the bottom 5% or 10% of that bell curve as a disorder. So it's not really a dis- it's not really a disease or something different. It's just these are the bottom 10% of reading ability, you know, children with re- reading ability, and it's not really fair to call that a disorder. Then you yeah. sort of get into semantics, you know. Sure, even if it is just the bottom 10%, if it's if they can't do something which is generally considered to be an ability that most people have and it's something that actually would impair their ability to function in modern society, you know, it's reasonable to say it's a disorder to the extent that they may need extra resources to try and to try to get them to learn better to read, uh, for example, uh, without, you know, getting into the semantic argument. It, it comes down to the argument of do these kids need special resources or not? And I think the answer to that is clearly yes. Now, for some reason, you know, th- this becomes like a, a political hot-button issue. From what I understand, it's comes up more frequently in the UK than it does in the US, although I still even hear it over here. In this case, there was a BBC article quoting Graham Stringer, who's a a member of parliament, and he described dyslexia as a quote-unquote cruel fiction. And he said this was made up by educators to explain away their failure to teach students how to read, teach some students how to read. But that is... Compl- that is nonsense. That is just a, that is a complete fiction. Uh, that's just rewriting history. You know, this is not something that was just made up by educators. There's actually there's actually a very mature neurological discipline you know, around the concept of dyslexia. It fits with our understanding of how the brain works, how reading works as a neurological function, and and there's actually a, a, a vast literature exploring what's actually neurologically different about children who express uh, dyslexia, and we're finding that there are different subsets depending on different parts of the brain that aren't functioning as well, and so it, it's, it's, you have to be ignorant of all of that to just write this off as a fiction invented by educators. So that's just an ignorant statement, unfortunately. Well, let's go on with our interview. Joining us now is Alice Tuff. Alice, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Thank you for inviting me to be here. And Alice is the development officer for a British group called Sense About Science. And they are a group of young scientists who uh, try to teach good science to the public. So, Alice, why don't you first start by just telling us about your group, how it got formed, your involvement with it. What do you guys do? Sure. Um, We're a UK-based charity, and our remit is to promote good science and evidence for the public. Um, And what that means is we work with scientists to try and respond to sort of misleading claims about science. We also try and look at, um, try and explain some of the scientific process and give people sort of tools to sort through some of the claims they come across and try and sort fact for fiction. We were basically set up about five years ago um, by Lord Fern, um, and it sort of came out of a debate in the House of Lords, where after all the problems in the UK with MMR and BSE, it was felt that science wasn't really being communicated very well, and it was also felt that scientists were often missing for the arguments. So they wanted to do something about it. So we were set up basically to respond directly to the public, work for the public, but work with scientists to do this. So you were, you were established by the British government? Uh, not by the British government, by Lord Fern. He's in the House of Lords. Oh, okay. Um, and he and a few other senior scientists at the time felt that um, this was an issue um, and they wanted to do something about it. Okay, and it says that you're a charitable trust. What, what exactly does that mean? Is that the equivalent, like, in the United States, you would say a non-profit organization? Is that the same thing? Yeah, so we're basically a charity, non-profit. 
Um, so what are some of the major issues that you have dealt with recently? Um, more recently, we've been doing things on detox for celebrities, but we've covered a whole range of subjects. One of the first things we looked at was chemicals, because we had quite a few scientists coming to us who were quite concerned about the kind of anti-chemical mentality there was at the time. So, and there's a lot of misconceptions around this, so it's sort of ideas that you can lead a chemical-free lifestyle, man-made chemicals, inherently dangerous, things like that. And they wanted to respond to some of this and try and give people some of the understanding about what the distinction is between natural and man-made chemicals and um, why just because a chemical's been linked to something doesn't mean it necessarily causes it. So we've done a lot of work in that area. We've also done work in weather and climate, radiation, and more recently work looking at um, patient groups and um, patients who are not getting access to information about different um, treatments. Uh, you mean like uh, dubious treatments or just right, standard medical treatments? Dubious treatments. So um, what we found is we had quite a few patient groups coming to us who were quite concerned because there's a lot of this stuff on the web and also on patient forums. They felt that um, some of these companies were posing as patients to try and sell some of their products. Um, and they were getting a lot of calls about this um, from patients who didn't really know um, what the evidence behind the treatment was, whether to pursue these treatments. Um, so they wanted to sort of put together something to help people sort of work through some of the information they'd come across. So it's giving insights like what peer review is, um, what clinical trials are, and what to look for in a treatment to see whether it's evidence-based or not. Is most of the, the work that you do essentially writing uh, for venues on the Internet, or what other kind of things do you do? Um, most of our publications are disseminated to um, a mixture of people. So we basically work with anybody who's an intermediary, which means it can um, anyone who basically is in contact with the public, which ranges from MPs to patient groups to teachers, um, civic intermediaries, a real range of people, and we basically disseminate the information through them. So, for example, with the patient guide, that went out to um, all the patient groups, um, medical research charities, doctors, midwives, nurses, all the people who are going to be speaking to patients about these issues. Uh, and that went out like in the form of a pamphlet? Yeah, so it's a short thing. It's called I've Got Nothing to Lose by Trying It. Um, and it basically just works through some of the things. So, for example, it talks about um, why do unproven therapies seem to work? What's the role of clinical trials? Medicine and news, is it real hope or hype? How to distinguish between different treatments, whether it's something that's just been linked. So, for example, you get um, headlines that say this has been linked to Alzheimer's. So it's helping people sort through, is there actually an issue there? Should I be worried about this? Or is it just that at the moment it's just been linked to it? Alice, you also released a Science for Celebrities pamphlet, uh, which, I, which I recently found, and I enjoyed that thoroughly. It basically, it just had, has quotes from, uh, about science from celebrities, followed by quotes by scientists describing why they're wrong. They, I was really impressed that the, the pamphlet even had a number. Uh, you offer a number to call to talk to a scientist. Um, I thought that was a really good idea. Do, do you ha find a specific celebrity to be especially irritating? We always find there's a few that pop up quite regularly. So, for example, in the UK, um, there's a nutritionist called Julie McKeed, and she's popped up the last couple of years. And there's also a lady called Carol Kaplan who's been giving sort of dodgy um, diet advice. Um, and they tend to come up quite often. But we've actually been quite impressed this year. It's been fantastic because it's actually getting better. What we've noticed is because it's our third year of doing it is that... Um, in certain areas, it seems to be improved. So, for example, celebrity chefs seem to have got the idea a bit better, and they're making less outrageous claims about nutrition. And generally, on the whole, it is getting better. Have you taken on the uh, MMR scare directly? I'm sure you have. That's probably a big issue for you. 
Um, that was one thing we, um, I think, dealt with slightly when we were first set up, but we actually do refer to it in a recent celebrities document because there's been quite a lot. I know over in the US um, there's been quite a few politicians speaking out about this and also a few celebrities. So we actually touched upon some of the, these points in the document itself and just got scientists to respond to it. And do, do you think that uh, you're having an impact? Are you being well-received? And have you, do you do anything to try to measure, measure that at all? Um, in a sense, the science of celebrities, what we've noticed is, um, like I said, it tends to be getting better. There are fewer examples now. Um, and we're also getting more requests for help to consult scientists, which is fantastic. Because that's what, really what we wanted to do. We really wanted to send a message just to check their facts before they speak out. And that there are scientists out there who are quite happy to help them and give them advice on these things. So a lot of what you do, it sounds like, is just your conduit between the mainstream scientific community and any kind of public media. It's partly working as a conduit and supporting scientists to get out there and speak about um, these issues and make sure the ac- uh, public has access to science. But it's also about explaining how science works. So we've done a lot of work talking about peer review. And when we set out to do this, everybody was quite shocked. Like, why peer review? You know, that's not very interesting. People won't find it helpful. And actually, um, we've produced a short guide, I Don't Know What to Believe, Making Sense of Science Stories. And it just goes through sort of the basic principles of what peer review is, how you can use it to sort of weigh up whether um, something's published or unpublished research, what that means. And it's one of our most popular publications to date. It's had something like over 150,000 copies downloaded. And it's a real range from teachers to MPs, and they're all using it and finding a really useful tool. Now, when you describe all of the things that you do, I'm, I'm struck by the similarity to uh, what we do, because we have the same mission, essentially, though we go about it slightly differently. So, But we in the United States, we, we call what you do and what we do skepticism or the skeptical movement. Is that a term <laughs> that you've used? to describe yourselves or do you see the, that any similarities or differences to, to uh, the skeptical movement? I can see, I've definitely heard the term you use, skeptical. I think it's quite a good um, description because what it really is is encouraging people to ask questions. So a lot of what we do is um, partly myth-busting but also encouraging people to start thinking about these things. So, for example, the work with the young scientists looking at product claims, one of the things that they really wanted to come out of it was to raise awareness with people that sometimes these claims aren't backed up by evidence and that also anyone can ask these questions. Anyone can ring up a company and ask them for the evidence behind their claims. But do, do you fi- what do you find is the attitude in, in the UK towards skepticism in general? Uh, is there a sense of negativity about the word or about people who self-identify as skeptics, do you think? And is that, again, is that a term that you specifically didn't use to describe your group or it just it wasn't even on the radar? Um, I don't think it was even on the radar, but I think definitely the skepticism has, it maybe had um, negative connotations originally, but I actually think, and partly due to things like your organization and also the wider blogging and podcasting community, um, I think it has become quite an accepted term these days. I don't think people really have a problem with it. I think it's seen as much more positive, it's seen as much more um having the knowledge to sort of really query these claims and really sort of question things. That's, that's exactly how I feel about it. it initially, the, people were thought they were cynical and had a negative connotation, but now it is getting, uh, you know, people are feeling better about it. I think, yeah, I think people have got the distinction between cynicism and skepticism, which I think was slightly confused in people's minds before. I think people see them now as two very different things. Yeah, I think we've made some progress on the PR front. 
I wanted to ask you about a couple of specific issues that you've addressed. I know you, uh, on your website, it discusses the fact that you personally did an investigation of homeopaths prescribing treatments for malaria. Can you tell us about that? Yes, um, this is basically, um, I came to Sense About Science as an intern originally, and one thing that had come up was um, this concern that homeopaths were giving advice about um, anti-malaria prophylaxis. So I basically went in to find out what advice they were giving. And at the very start of the investigation, the first thing I did was go to a medical travel clinic and find out um, what information they would give. And it was, took a long time. It was very detailed. They talked about the different countries, the different options, um, and just went through everything in really sort of great detail. Um, and one thing that struck me was the first time I walked into a homeopathic pharmacy, I went into them and asked whether they... Um, had any um, treatments I could use for malaria and um, they said yes and I was like oh is it okay to take it you know does it work and they were like yes yes it's fine and they actually advised me to stop taking my um, doctor's medication because mm-hmm. I said I wasn't sure about taking it because I thought I was going to get side effects and they're like no no it's fine don't worry about taking it take our wow. stuff and the whole transaction took something like 10 minutes and I think that's what struck me more than anything they didn't give any advice on side effects and um, they didn't give any advice on bite prevention nothing like that and just read that comparison really was quite shocking. And that's very different than the public face that uh, the homeopaths present, right? I mean, they really try to present themselves as as being more thorough and also not uh, – they don't publicly admit that they will prescribe homeopathic remedies instead of proven medicines for definitive diseases like malaria. But you walk into the store and, and they will. You you find that disconnect? Yes, um, and it was interesting, that part. I mean, there was a couple of exceptions where I did have slightly longer... Um, I think I went to 10 in total, and I think about two of them I had slightly longer consultations. But the rest of them were very much quick transactions. It was just a case of um, going in, asking for it, yes, fine, no problem, here's the mon- your money, here's your pills, off you go. When you made that information public, what was the reaction that you got? It was phenomenal, actually. It was um, Newsnight in the UK picked it up and did their own investigation um, and oh. found it was um, the same thing happened, which they then released at the same time as um, we released our investigation. And what really hit it home to me was a neighbour of my boyfriend's came up to me and said, oh, I'd been taking these and I hadn't realised that there wasn't a problem with them. I hadn't realised they wouldn't possibly work. Um, and that really hit home to me that most people aren't necessarily aware of these things and how important it was to get out there that information. Yeah, and it is, it is striking as well, just the inherent deceptiveness of the whole endeavor. I mean, it's like they're, they're hiding from the public what they're really claiming. It is amazing how few people, even still, despite our efforts, don't realize that homeopathic remedies contain nothing at all. Exactly, and when you speak to most people, they think it's herbal medicine. They're like, oh, you know, it's just a sort of herbal, natural thing. And it, when you go through it, people, most people I find are very shocked at exactly what homeopathy is. In fact, there is nothing in it. Uh, and the, I think that that's similar to the broader alternative medicine movement also, that while, you know, in certain uh, sectors, the spiritual energy, you know, aspect of it is very appealing, but in terms of the public face that they're trying to present, they try to make it seem more scientific and plausible, uh, but then behind the curtain, it's just pure magical thinking. But there's, again, that, that screen of absolute deceptiveness uh, in place. Do you find the same thing? 
Yeah, I think so. I think um, it's really important that people go to these things and ask the evidence behind it. I think it's really important that people have access to finding out exactly what evidence is supporting these treatments. It's anyone's own choice whether they decide to pursue a treatment or not, but they need to have access to all the information and the evidence behind it. You were also involved in the uh, the recent um, push against the, the detox claims. What, what can you tell me about that? Sure, that was basically another project by our young scientists, which is basically postdocs and PhDs. And they started looking into sort of pseudoscientific product claims last year, released something and invited others to join their cause. And um, more people started joining, and one thing that kept coming up was detox. And what they wanted to find out was when they looked around, detox was being used to describe everything from teas to tonics to hair straighteners. Um, and this seemed implausible. So they wanted to find out what evidence the company had for their claims and um, what they meant by detox. What they found was that every company, or most companies, had different definitions of the word detox. And most of them had little or no evidence to support the claims. And even worse, a lot of them were making misleading claims about the body. So there was this trend, this idea that somehow toxins build up in you, you need to purge it. Um, you can boost your liver and kidney to cleanse these toxins and chemicals. Um, so they did two things. They released the um, results of their product investigation, the detox dossier, and they also produced a leaflet explaining how the body works and the fact that the body is the best thing you can have. Your liver and kidneys will do the job, which they've been releasing sort of all over the country, um, taking out into the public and handing it out. Now, it sounds like from everything we've discussed so far, the, your, your activities are geared towards just educating the public about all of these topics, and certainly that's a, a huge task. But when you get into areas like alternative medicine and homeopathy, and, and you said like the use of the word detox, it, it's hard not to stray into uh, issues of government regulation. Is that something that you guys deal with? Do you have a position on like how things like this should be regulated, or do you try to stay as apolitical as possible? We don't really deal in regulation, and partly that's because I th we feel that one of the most effective tools is actually to raise this kind of social and cultural awareness of asking these questions. So, for example, on the products thing, one thing that came out of it last year was people like, oh, you know, how do you, um, what do you do with these products? Can you report them? Yes, there are a few organizations you can report them to, but there's also a lot of gray areas. So, for example, products are sold on the Internet. No one really regulates them. And for everyone that you um, sort of... A comp uh, an organization could take down, more will pop up. So what's better, I think, in a lot of these cases to actually raise this kind of social awareness that um, the claims on these products are wrong and that people should question them. And there are also some topics, and I see that you deal with them, you know, on, again, on your website, uh, that uh, at least in the United States, are heavily political. It's hard, even among scientists and skeptics, you bring up certain topics and... You know, people's political sensibilities flare up. One topic, which I actually, it's from our perspective, seems to be even more of a controversy in Europe than it is in the United States, is genetically modified food. Uh, have, has Sense About Science taken a position on that, or or what what information do you think is most salient about the the way the public thinks about GM food? Um, I think the problem with GM food is there's a lot of misconceptions and I think scientists were quite slow to react 
initially, and that's one of the reasons our um, w- one of our reasons our organisation was sort of started. But that was another thing at the time was if we felt the scientists weren't really getting out there and getting involved in the debate. Um, we're actually put doing some work at the moment on this. Um, we're releasing something on this in a couple of months, and we're basically looking at kind of what the misconceptions are around GM, and a lot of it seems the fact that people think it's a new technology, um, concerns about the health, when actually the evidence is very different from what's been reported in the media. So it's something we're hoping to work on and get out there. Like, so what are some of the, the, the main misconceptions that the public has about GM food? Um, I think one of them is definitely the idea it's a new technology. Most people see um, don't see selective breeding and see the fact that GMs actually are a fine version of this. So people don't look at it and see that we've actually been changing and mutating crops and different things to get what we want and the best sort of production for years. GM is essentially just a very refined tool where you can actually minimize the risk of other mutations and people don't really have that understanding. Yeah, I mean, if you look, think about it, we've been doing it for thousands of years. You know, pretty much everything we eat has been drastically altered from the way it existed in nature prior to human meddling. Exactly. The cows you see today, the big fat heifers in the fields, are very different from the skinny things that existed thousands of years ago. And I think most people aren't really aware of that, and they see them as completely separate things. And the other topic, just again looking at the list of things that you specifically mentioned on your website that strikes me as a very political one, is weather and climate change. Is that something that you guys have dealt with directly? Um, what we've been doing is um, we've been working with weather and climate scientists who are worried that people are getting slightly confused between the distinction between weather and climate predictions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, um, weather forecasts um, are based on probability of certain events happening, but climates over time. So you'll get a one-off weather event, which may be ascribed to global warming when actually it's part of a long-term process. So we've been basically working with scientists to explain how they do the modelling, how weather and climate differentiates, and also what causes extreme weather events. Mm-hmm. So again, you just try to educate the public about like the difference between climate and weather and so they could think about and understand the issue, but you haven't really taken a position on whether or not you think anthropogenic global warming is, is scientific and legitimate or not. Um, we basically will always state where the evidence is. So we work with community scientists across the range and we'll say the evidence is here at this point. So we don't really take a position. We always just say where the science and evidence is. And what is your opinion on that? And, and also, just in general, do you think um, what is what do you think the public opinion is in the UK about man-made global warming? I think most people feel it's actually a real and present effect. I think one of the big debates at the moment is um, gearing the country up to deal with it. So one of the concerns at the moment is that um, we're not looking enough at things like flood defences and looking around at the wider sort of um, what impacts this is going to have on the actual country and what resources need to be put in place to be able to deal with this. And and is there a political party or faction in the UK that generally is sceptical or doubtful of man-made global warming or is is it accepted across the political spectrum? I would say it's accepted across the political spectrum and I think it's obviously very a hot topic these days in campaigns. Um, everybody wants to be seen as to be doing something about it mm. so it's quite kind of a media-savvy thing to be really sort of um, supportive. So I think most of them are fully on board with it. Well, Alice, we really appreciated having you on The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I hope we can have you back sometime in the future and I also, it looks like that there's so much overlap between what our groups do. We should talk about collaboration in the future. 
Yeah, it'd be fantastic. We were actually um, looking to set up um, some international aspects to our work. So what we, we basically were not going to attempt to replicate ourselves in other countries, but we'd like to work with other organisations to share some of our work and way of doing it. And it's something that's sort of in the process at the moment. So it'd be fantastic to talk to you a bit more about it once we've got something more set in place. Well, good talking with you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And now, Randy Speaks. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, as the case may be. I'm James Randy. When I get into discussions about whether or not there's any real science being used in the art known as parapsychology, and it is an art involving a lot of sleight of mind, I often provide this parallel. Don't ever think that just because a specialized vocabulary has been developed for a variety of ology, such as parapsychology, that it necessarily has a factual basis just for that reason. Here's another example. Take the medieval notion known as transubstantiation. For those of you who are not up on religious mythology, I'll explain what that's supposed to be. When the ceremony-slash-ritual-slash-performance known as communion is conducted in some churches, two props are in evidence, bread and wine. Now, what's supposed to be bread is hardly what we'd recognize as that commodity. It consists of a small, thin wafer of some sort. But the wine used is the real thing, though usually with just a soupçon that it may become vinegar at any moment. But here's the truth of the matter. The devout parishioners who partake of the communion ceremony are asked to believe, and probably do believe, that a magical transubstantiation has occurred transforming the wine into blood and the bread into flesh. No, I'm serious. They're taught that this rather inferior bread and wine material has been miraculously transformed into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I apologize if this is a rude surprise to you. It certainly was to me, and I need hardly tell you that I rejected the notion immediately. And getting back to what's supposed to be science... Here's the parallel I'm trying to make. Take the word psychokinesis, meaning movement by psychological means, as a good example. That's a commonly used expression in the woo-woo world of parapsychology, which word by itself means parallel with psychology. It's a widely held delusion by some people that they, or other gifted persons, can cause small objects to move or even change in substance. Folks, the fact that a name has been invented to describe this, even though it's formed from real Latin derivatives, doesn't make it any more real than transubstantiation or the Tooth Fairy or Sylvia Brown's year-end predictions. Much the same sort of reasoning can be applied to the parapsychologists themselves. Now, there are two different sorts of parapsychologists. One kind goes through life constantly deceiving themselves making excuses and rationalizations for failures, and yet turning out many books and papers on their work, always promising further progress if only sufficient funding were to be provided. And that usually follows because there are lots of wishful thinkers out there with money. The other kind of parapsychologist spends some time at it, then looks at the evidence more closely and opts to take up another profession. Sterling examples of this reversal can be found in Dr. Susan Blackmore and Dr. Chris French, UK scientists who saw the train wreck they could have become part of 
but left the track in time to avoid the inevitable collision with the real world. In fact, both Duke University and Stanford in the USA gave up their many years of involvement in parapsychology simply because they had no positive results to support their continued involvement. And the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, known as PEAR, the PEAR Lab, closed down operation just recently after almost 30 years in business. And for the same reason. In many cases, parapsychologists will be PhDs, a most exalted academic position. But many such folks make the presumption that once they've earned that distinction, they can't be fooled. Because they think logically and in a straightforward, linear manner, they're much easier to deceive than they think they are. You see, an electron, a cell, a crystal, will always do the same thing when subjected to the same forces, within limitations, of course. But when the human element enters the equation, the possibility of purposeful deception or self-deception is present. And any magician will tell you that he or she would much rather take on the task of fooling, for entertainment purposes, of course, a learned adult rather than a child. The reason for that is not intuitive at all. The fact is that a child is not smart enough, not sufficiently experienced with the real world, to be easily deceived. I'm James Randi. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Uh, We have a slightly different version this week. I'm going to read you four items. These are not news items. These are facts that I pulled out of a book. I'll tell you what that book is when we're done. Wait, what if the book is the book of stupid made-up facts? These are four facts. Three of these are true. Ignore me, Steve. You can do and, it. And one of these, one of these is fake. I know you <laughs> can do so, it. Here we go. I'll tell you about the book after we're done. Here's fact number one. Coffee beans are not beans. They are seeds. That's bullshit. Item number two. Although sometimes used as a common name, there is no such thing as a panther in scientific classification. Item number three, bubbles form in champagne by carbon dioxide condensing on imperfections in the glass. And item number four, flamingos in the wild get their pink color mainly from eating blue-green algae. Oh, man. And Rebecca, since you're, you're about to fall asleep, <laughs> I'll let you go first. Um, so uh, coffee beans are called coffee beans for a reason, Steve. Uh, so... <laughs> I'm a little suspicious that they might not actually be beans, the seeds. The idea that there's no such thing as a panther, I've heard something similar, I think, that maybe panther is just a, a black jaguar or wildcat or mountain lion. Mountain lion, I think that's what it is. But yeah, it's just a, it's just a, a word that we have for a black version of some other cat. I, I do believe that... Um, Bubbles are mostly, the bubbles in champagne are mostly affected by the imperfections of glass. That does make sense. Um, But flamingos in the wild, I always heard that they get their pink color not from blue-green algae, because that's stupid, because those are two completely different colors, Um, but that they get their pink color from shrimp, 
which are pink. So I'm going to say that you made that up. Yeah, I guess that means that coffee beans aren't beans, that they are seeds. So, yeah, I'm going with the last one. I think you, you made up that blue-green algae crap. Okay, Evan? Yeah, I'm having problems with this blue-green algae stuff, too. I'm not sure why, though. I don't buy the shrimp eating. And the as far as the other three go, the coffee beans, actually seeds, makes very good sense to me. Um, the panther? Hmm. That's interesting. I've never heard that in any context before, so I don't know about that one. And the bubbles from champagne, carbon dioxide, condensing on imperfections in the glass is, I guess, plausible. I'll have to agree with Rebecca and say the flamingos one is the fiction. Okay, Bob? Yeah, I'm going to buy the coffee beans or not beans that they're seeds. If you look at the shape of them, aren't they kind of like bifurcated, like like a seed and not smooth like the be- at least the beans that I eat. So that that alone makes me think that think that they're actually seeds and not beans. Interesting. Um let's see. The panther, yeah, panther does sound kind of generic to me. Um I could buy that that it's not a real scientific classification. And the bubbles forming in the champagne, I think most people have heard of that. It, the uh, the carbon dioxide finds these nucleation sites, these imperfections and and uh starts building the little bubbles on top of them until they're big enough to float away so that leaves the flamingos um i guess i'm gonna have to say that that one is is the fiction okay jay the coffee beans are not beans they are seeds that is correct didn't you say that was bullshit when it first came up yeah i did that to throw you off yeah well it didn't work did it It worked yeah Hmm. i actually remember um i think way back in science class when i was a kid i remember this but I, I don't quite remember what the significant difference is between a bean and a seed. Well, a bean is actually um, the magical fruit. So the more you, the more you eat it, I, I've heard, the more you toot. I think a, a bean grows in a, in a pod, but okay, anyway, without getting into... <laughs> How did I not get a laugh over that? The magical fruit? Come on. I'm laughing inside. I'm laughing. Go on. I'm laughing the, back uh, in history from like second grade. The panther scientific classification one. Um, I freakishly also think I remember something about this that wasn't. You know, I'm not. I didn't read the book. Whatever book Steve read, I I didn't read. But I'm not. I'll get back to that one. <laughs> the bubbles formed champagne by carbon dioxide condensing on imperfections in the glass. That is absolutely correct. And I think most people know that. And the flamingos eating the algae, that is so cool. If that's what makes them pink, I love that. That's very cool. But I'm going to go with number two because I actually think I remember something to the contrary about that as uh, I think that that is incorrect. Okay. So, Jay, you're going with the panthers. Everyone else is going with the flamingos, right? Okay. So we'll start with number one. First, I'll tell you where these come from. These all come from the Book of General Ignorance. Everything you think you know is General wrong. Ignorance. He used to be a major, right? And then- yeah, uh-huh. that's right. That's right. It was, it was promoted uh, by John Lloyd and John Mitchinson. And what it is is a collection of things that are commonly believed but are wrong. And it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, I have a lot of quibbles with it, though, and we'll talk about some of them in a minute. Quibbles. So as you might imagine, any t- any type of book like that is going to, you know, just opens up the door to pedantry. Uh, but anyway, so coffee beans are not beans; they are seeds. That's that true. That is true. Yeah. That is science. Beans specifically are 
um, any of various New World twinning herbs of the genus Phaseolus in the pea family. And it could refer to the seed or the pod or the plant bean. Beans don't necessarily come in a pod. You can actually use the word bean to refer to the pod in some cases. Like a string bean, right. String bean is the pod with the seeds in it. Whereas uh, coffee beans are not related to that at all. They actually, the, the, the coffee beans are seeds, and, and when they grow, they are um, surrounded by a very intensely sweet fruit. And then that fruit, the, the, again, the coffee beans are inside. Remember we talked about civet coffee? Remember that? Yeah. 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 Recover the coffee beans from the, the poop of civets. That's because the civets eat the fruit. Right. There's sweet fruit yeah. around it. Yeah. That's why you see coffee beans, when they pick them up, they, they could be red or green. You all also agree that bubbles form in champagne by carbon dioxide condensing on imperfections the in the glass. And that one is the fiction. Whoa! What? What? That's BS, you, Steve. Are you saying you duped us all? I did. I'm sorry. So it turns out... <laughs> no, 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 no. This is all wrong. That book is BS. I, I had to do my independent confirmation because I didn't buy a lot of stuff I read in this book either. But it turns out that... The imperfections in the glass are too small to form condensation nuclei for the dissolved carbon dioxide in champagne. So what is it? Is, is it, it is dirt? Actually oh, dirt. it's dirt. It's dirt. Oh, I remember that it's, right then when you said it. Oh, <laughs> damn. It's dirt and dust and little bits. Right, when right when he said it. In the champagne, but not the glass. But not no, it's not glass. like a little tiny free-floating glass. Yeah. Ah, I can't uh. believe I... Oh! <laughs> Guess how many... Bubbles there are in an average bottle Three, of champagne. Maybe four. Three million. Five million. Two hundred and fifty million. Wow. That's a lot of bubbles. <laughs> That's a lot of bubbles. I met a stripper wow. named Bubbles once and <laughs> Damn. Yeah, she had a lot of So again, these, you have a these lot of were, dirt on her too. <laughs> these were these were tricky because they were they were all things that people commonly believe. So of course this means that although sometimes used as a common name, there is no such thing as a panther in scientific classification. That is true. Well, obviously, is but the flamingos, now, come on. All right, we'll get there in a second. So the <laughs> the panther thing is very interesting. Now, this is where the, in my opinion, the book you know it tries to emphasize the degree to which common beliefs are wrong by glossing over some of the. Well, but isn't the word is it's right? the, it's not actually the word panther, isn't it? Like a variation of the word panther is are they being that picky in the book? The word panther just means beast, and it can be used to refer to any large cat. It does, it's not actually a genus or a species of large cat. There's no such thing, in a way, as a panther. However, I had to reformulate what they said because there actually is a Florida panther. Oh, the yeah. Florida panther is a common name for a specific species. So that's why I said it's used as a common name but not as a scientific classification. They kind of glossed over that and just said there's no such thing as panthers. I Fine. saw one. I saw one on the highway. Yeah, I've, I've seen him in captivity when you know, we this, visit Florida. This was in the them. wild. It was really cool. We were driving to Disney, and I see this huge black cat loping across the highway with that with that typical mm-hmm. way cats move. It was gorgeous, unbel- and it was huge, huge, incredible. Oh God, that thing could kill you it? so fast you wouldn't even know what happened. Actually, Florida panthers are, are tan in color. Yeah, but this is, this one was um, this was a black panther, Steve. Yes, you saw some, but, a, but black panthers are. Rebecca was correct. Black panthers. What you think of as a black panther is actually a, a leopard that has black on black spots. Oh. And if you look closely at them, you can actually see the leopard spots oh. in in the texture they of the fur. Very so scary. Have you ever seen that? Like at a zoo? Have you ever seen no, that? No. No. But uh, Bob, panthers are actually cougars, subspecies. 
puma. So they're actually pumas. Steve, what about lion-o? Lion-o was a, a lion-human hybrid. Snarf. So, Bob, you saw a jaguar on the highway, so it's probably driving by very quickly. <laughs> I saw a big Bob's like, I saw a black was. jaguar. <laughs> it had four-wheel drive. Oh, my God. So, um... But that's how I thought that was interesting. I, I hate you for that. that. I, I hate this that. whole science or fiction segment. Now, I here, hate it. Flamingos in the wild get their pink color mainly from eating blue-green algae. That that's one is that's so just stupid. How can blue-green algae I, cause I, pink flamingos? Use your imagination. I had to throw in two caveats that they excluded because they just said they don't get them from shrimp. But, but here's Popcorn the full story. Shrimp. So there are four different species of flamingo. They uh, eat a variety of things. They eat mainly blue-green algae. Some species do also eat crustaceans, you know, tiny crustaceans, uh, that they filter through their, through their mouth. What the book said was that they, they don't get the color at all from the quote-unquote shrimp that they eat. But actually, that's not true. They do get some of the color from the shrimp, but they get it more from the blue-green algae. And they also get it from a lot of other things that they eat as well. It ultimately comes from the carotene. And this is why blue-green algae aren't pink or red and why crustaceans uh, in the wild are not, in life, are not pink or red. Because the carotene, which is a, a red pigment, is bound to proteins, and those proteins make them blue or green or some other color. But when they, uh, when you Digested. cook a shrimp, for example, you denature those proteins. So that's why when you cook a shrimp, it goes from white to red, because you're denaturing the proteins that are binding to the carotene, and that's releasing the color of the carotene. Oh, wow, that's really cool. In, in the flamingo, the, car- the carotene gets, again, d- decoupled from the proteins that are neutralizing its color and then gets incorporated into growing feathers, turning those feathers pink to red or, cr- or crimson or something, depending on what, exactly what they're eating. I also had to throw in in the wild because often flamingos in zoos are fed shrimp in order to make their – and other things in order to make their coats huh. pink. Uh, but in the in the wild, they mainly feed on blue green. See, that book sounds awesome. It's fun, but I had to ch- independently check things out. They did gloss over some of these details. Wait, so wait, did I, you check every fact in the book? No, just the ones that I was using tonight. You know, but and other ones out of interest, uh, not everyone. But there was some, and a couple. I mean, there's a lot of things we would know about, like the ten percent of the brain thing. Basically, any historical story you ever heard is a lie. You know, it's always the propaganda that later emerged is what we all know in public consciousness, but it's never what actually really happened. Anyway, it, is, it is a fun book, but, but, even, but you have to be skeptical of even the, the facts that they have Definitely. in that book, which, of course, is a, is a good thing. Confirm. Always confirm. Evan. Who's that noisy? Tell us the answer to last week's Who's That Noisy and Who Won? All right. For those of you who missed it last week, here is the clip again. Although there is nothing supernatural about it, I am willing to profit the sum of $1,000 to anyone who can prove that it is possible. And, and that is, of course, the one and only Harry Houdini speaking about his water torture cell. A lot of people got it. Recorded. Yeah, they, a lot of people did get, did get it. Well, you know, they cheaty Googled it, you know, cheaters. Yeah, we're still, we're still dialing it in. You know, Evan is still trying to figure out how tough to make this. But that was cool to hear, to hear Harry Houdini. In 1914. 1914. 
And he has that voice that they had back then. Yeah. There's, like a, there's an accent, there's a temporal accent that you could always tell when... Yeah, it also sounds corny. Very yeah. staged. To, per, yes. to, moder- to modern ears, it sounds very staged. Very and next, oil. I'm going to tell you that we <laughs> have to do... Th- yeah, it's oh, like the that. humanity. Um, one, one, email, one listener emailed in and said that was James Randi, and he was like, I'm 100% correct. <laughs> but if I'm wrong, completely ignore this email. <laughs> Randy's not that old. <laughs> Richard Sokor from New York. First to guess first. correctly. So congratulations, well done, Richard. Richard, and thanks for playing. Now, <laughs> on to this week's Who's That Noisy? All right. Who is Can it? you identify this noise? That That's Rebecca saying, poop, poop, <laughs> poop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there you go. Very no, nothing to Google there, folks. So I know, right? <laughs> so listen to it a couple Google, times. Google, I typed bleep into Google, but it didn't come up with anything. <laughs> Jay, yeah. Do you have a quote for us this week? I have three quotes this week. Three, please, please Skype. Three this quotes. Me. Yes, quotes? I have three. Pick one. Three, three. Wow. All right, I'll start with Rebecca in London speaking at Skeptics in the Pub on Monday, the nineteenth. And she said, excuse me, I just have snot. <laughs> it's true, I did say that, and I did have snot. Rebecca Watson! Jay picks the best quotes for the rogues. That was, that was sent in by uh, Chris Hillman. Thank you, Chris. You have That's no inspiring. idea how much I appreciated that quote. Very inspiring. <laughs> excuse very... me, everybody, I just have it's snot. It's true, it was going to go dripping on. I was very, very ill. For my talk, Rebecca is a very classy lady. Well, I'm a, I'm a professional, and I don't just drill snot on the microphone without letting everyone know. Okay, my next my next quote. This somebody sent me a link for this. I'm totally sorry. When the wash of emails, I, I mixed up, and I, I don't know who it is. But but check this out. This is Paris Hilton comment commenting about her going on uh, Richard Branson's uh, Virgin space flight, and apparently Paris Hilton is going to be on it. And she said, God, I can't believe this. She goes, I'm very scared to do it. What if I don't come back? With the whole light years thing, what if I come back 10,000 years later and everyone I know is dead? I'll be like, great, now I have to start all over. Wow. That's wrong on That's so many really levels. Funny, yeah. Actually. That was a good one. Hey, all right, you lost me at Paris Hilton, so there we go. Okay, and I'm not giving her a shout out because uh, this next quote I have is uh, from a book. By Karl Popper. Karl Popper was an Austrian British philosopher and a professor at the London School of Economics. And Karl wrote The scientific tradition is distinguished from the pre scientific tradition in, ha- in having two layers. Like the latter, it passes on its theories, but it also passes on a critical attitude towards them. The theories are passed on, not as dogmas, but rather with the challenge to discuss them and improve upon them. Carl Popper. And that was sent in by Paul Southworth. And uh, thanks for the quote, Paul. Popper is the guy (laughs) who uh, essentially advanced the notion of empirical falsification as critical to the scientific method. Awesome. Cool. Now that's cool. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining me again this week. Rebecca, thanks for talking with us at 3 in the morning. I think it's like 4 in the morning now. 
Thanks for joining me again. And until <laughs> next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.